Welcome back to episode six of the Boundary Rider podcast. I am joined by Nick Savage. How are you, Nick? Lock, I'm doing very well. We've got the test squad to look at today. We finally got those 17 names and there's a few stories there to unpack. Oh, it's certainly an exciting summer ahead now with this squad named. Uh, before we get into it, make sure if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Wherever you might be listening, make sure you, you drop us a subscribe. Hit us with a comment. Share it with your friends and family. It really means a lot if you can get the word out there about the Boundary Rider podcast. But Nick, this Australian squad, 17 men, five are uncapped. A lot of names there. Joe Burns, he did make the cut. We'll go through some winners and losers. I've got a few winners in mind, but I think... We've got to go through the losers first, Nick. Who, who do you think has really missed out here? Well, I think the big loser is Sean Marsh. He's been pick of the players in the tournament in the Sheffield Shield so far. Highest run score, I believe, three centuries in four games. But I think this is just an indication from the national selectors that his international career is over. Um, so I think he's the biggest loser from this. He's not being picked in that squad. Um, but as well as him, there's a couple of players who primarily batsmen who have done really well in the Shield and haven't been named, um, with the selectors opting for a couple of young guns. I think the likes of Moses Henriquez, um, he was not only this season, but last season has done incredibly well in the Sheffield Shield, but still hasn't quite found a way into that national squad. And also Ashton Agar. Now, he has had a fantastic tournament, um, both with bat and ball, but I think they've opted instead for Cameron Green as the all-round option, I suppose. So Ashton Agar, he's, he's still not quite in that test selection, even though he's been so formidable in the shorter formats. Well, I think in terms of Agar, that it's quite clear that in the selector's eyes, Swepson has usurped him as the number two spinner in Australia now. I think for a while there, it was considered to be Ashton Agar with his left arm orthodox, but Swepson... I think on the back of his irresistible form, he's the highest wicket taker in the shield this season. Understandably has catapulted himself into that side. And there's now, you can't not look at him and go, here is Australia's at least second best spinner. Yeah, exactly right. Swepson's just been too good to ignore. And I, and I suppose there is no room for three strike spin bowlers in, in a squad like this, particularly on Australian pitches. But as well as them, um, there's a few former test players who have missed out. Um, Usman Khawaja, um, obviously an incredible talent, but only really discovered some form towards the back end of this stint in the Sheffield Shield, which just wasn't enough to bang the door down. Uh, Marcus Harris, he's been uh, batting superbly alongside Will Pekofsky at the top of the order, but he missed out as well with um, Joe Burns retaining his spot. And um, as well as them, uh, Cameron Bancroft, uh, he's had a decent start as well. He was obviously in test selection last year at the Ashes and he wasn't named in that squad against Pakistan last summer, but has also missed out. So there's a few names who are on the verge and will feature in the Australia A matches, but um, are just not quite there to make the 70-man test squad as of yet. That is very true. Now, just for brevity's sake, let's go through that Australian side. Sean Abbott, Joe Burns, Pat Cummins, Cameron Green, Josh Hazelwood, Travis Head, Manus Labashane, Nathan Lyon, Michael Neeser, Tim Payne, James Paddinson, Will Bukowski, Steve Smith, Mitchell Stark, Mitchell Swepson, Matthew Wade, and David Warner. They will be the 17 men competing against India in the four-match test series starting on December 17 in Adelaide Oval. Now, for me, obviously I've mentioned Mitch Swepson. I think he's a massive winner getting his place in that squad. But obviously we'll talk about Cameron Green and Will Bukowski. But I can't go past Sean Abbott and how good it is to see him in this test squad. He's obviously been... Incredible for New South Wales over the first three matches of their Shield season. And 
I reckon this is just reward. What do you think, Nick? Absolutely. They, they couldn't possibly ignore him. This is someone who, in conditions that have been suited for batting in the Sheffield Shield, he's managed to be the second highest wicket taker in terms of pace bowlers with a bowling average of around 16. And considering how big the totals have been, that that's absolutely brilliant. He's guided New South Wales to a couple of victories and I think, I think won two player of the match awards as well. And then, um, so not only that, his batting. I forgot to mention his batting. I think he's averaging over 120, 130 with the bat, including that maiden century against Tasmania on Wednesday. Um, And we'll talk later about how Mitchell Stark was a little bit unlucky to not get his maiden test uh, first-class century as well. But yeah, Sean Abbott, he's come out of nowhere. I don't think it was even in the test selector's mind, say, two months ago. But now on the back of this unfathomable form in the Sheffield Shield. He's rightfully earned a spot in that top six pace bowling attack for the test squad. And it was interesting talking to Trevor Hones today during his press conference. I put the question to him about what do you see Sean Abbott now? Is he someone, is he still considered a bowler, primarily a strike bowler, or do you see him more as an all-rounder now? And he admitted that, yes, especially on the weight of his runs that he scored in the Shield and his average that is quite incredible now, they certainly see him as a bowling all-rounder and someone that could have a bit of impact with the bat. Yeah, I, I categorise him as a bowling all-rounder. Uh, and look, his form with the bat over the last 12 months has been outstanding. He, uh, I'm sure if you, you checked his numbers, he'd be averaging in excess of 50 with the bat, batting at, at seven and eight in that area. So he, he's a fantastic package at the moment. Uh, whether the opportunity will be there to to get him some test match cricket, but that remains to be seen. A bit of insight there into potentially selection because you've got three or four bowlers there who could be considered bowling all-rounders. Now, obviously, Pat Cummins is very good with the bat. Mitchell Stark, also very good with the bat, even though he didn't get the century. We'll get onto that a little bit later. And then, of course, you've got Cameron Green, who whilst maybe early in his career, and as we spoke to him back in episode one, probably considered himself a bowling all-rounder, he's probably now considered more of a batting all-rounder. And it means that Australia have a lot more flexibility if they do want to make a change in that number six spot in the lineup because they could push Tim Payne up and put a bowling all-rounder in there now. Yeah, spot on. I think specifically for the Sydney Test match, they could utilise the amount of all-rounders in that squad, potentially bring in a Cameron Green as a seam option if they wanted to have a second spin bowler. So I think there is actually a chance that we could see two test debutants at the SCG this year. There's a chance that Swepson and Green could come in um, if they wanted to rest, say, for example, Stark or Hazelwood. So I think there's a chance we'll see. There's obviously five uncapped players in this test squad. We could be seeing three, maybe even four test debuts this summer. It's really exciting. Not only is there an Australian squad with plenty of potential debutants, but there is an Australia A side that has the potential to really throw up some contenders for surprising picks for an Australia side in the future, potentially. Uh, In that Australia A side, was there anything that surprised you, Nick? I think for me, the surprising aspect of that squad was some of the pace bowlers they named. Um, In no way, no way do I want to talk down the talents of these names, but the likes of Harry Conway, Mark Steckity and Will Sutherland, we've each seen uh, the glimpses of what they have to offer in the Sheffield Shield. They've shown some promise. They're each quite young, but they're also each quite inexperienced. Regardless, um, they might not even play. I think it's more likely we'll see uh, Nisa, James Pattinson, 
um, and Jackson Bird be picked ahead of them. So they might not even get a go. But I think this is just primarily a message to them to say, hey, keep it up, keep pushing. In the future years, you could be a chance. I think it is just a bit encouraging for them that they they have been named in this extended squad. But um, as I said, they might not even get a go against India. Definitely. I think that match will probably be used for some of those bowlers to get a bit more red ball bowling under their belts. I mean, you look at someone like James Pattinson, he'll be coming back from the IPL without having played in any of Victoria's Shield matches. So it'll be important to get him fit and firing if he's needed for the upcoming test series against India. I guess some of the surprising omissions for me in that Australia A side, I'm going to go through three WA guys who I thought probably should have been there. I reckon Cameron Bancroft, Sam Whiteman and Josh Inglis all definitely could have had a say to be in that Australia A side, especially Josh Inglis. Obviously, Australia consider Alex Carey, I guess, their number two keeper. Um, That's proven by the fact he's been given leadership positions previously in the white ball squad and the fact that they pick him so regularly for those white ball teams. But in red ball cricket, Josh Inglis has been absolutely fantastic so far for WA this season. Uh, 354 runs at an average of 118, including 153 not out. And he's been striking him quickly too. His strike rate's somewhere near 85. And there's no one else above the mid-60s in the top run scorers chart. So it's been quite incredible how well he's been striking the ball at Sheffield Shield level. He's someone who I thought, this could have been a really perfect opportunity to see whether he has what it takes to take that next step up and go to that representative level. Because at the end of the day, he's been performing at Sheffield Shield level, is only 25. And with Tim Payne only having probably a few seasons left at most in the Australian test side, we need other keepers putting pressure on Alex Carey so he doesn't just feel like, okay, the gloves are mine as soon as Payne goes. Because if there's pressure on him, he'll continue to perform and then deserve that keeping role so I would have liked to have seen someone like a Josh Inglis come in there yeah and Alex Carey he's obviously been in the IPL and not only has he been over in the UAE representing that T20 format but he hasn't even been playing that much he wasn't picked very often by Ricky Ponting's side in the tournament so while Inglis has been scoring those centuries in the Sheffield Shield Carey's been pretty much playing no cricket. He's got not a lot of experience under his belt since that tour of England. And all of a sudden, we've got English kind of pushing for that second keeper role in the national selector's eyes. So who knows? Like when Payne does eventually retire, there's a slim chance that if English continues this, that Kerry could be omitted and we could get a different debutante with the gloves. But um, that's hopefully a discussion we won't be needing for a couple of years. That's true. I think Payne's keeping form, as we'll probably chat about a bit later too, has certainly looked good in the Shield, so there's no reason to be talking about who's going to replace him yet. One final thing for me in this Australia A squad, obviously I think you and I will both be very happy to see Nick Maddinson there. Obviously he hasn't had as much of a run in the Shield season this this year, mainly because Will Pukowski and Marcus Harris have just not wanted to give their wicket away. Got a little bit of a roll on the other day against WA, but really didn't make the most of that opportunity. So hopefully if he does get picked for this Australia A game, he can make the most of that and sort of reaffirm to the selectors why he was the leading run scorer last year and why people were going, hey, maybe hey, maybe Nick Madison could come back into the squad. So let's hope he gets an opportunity and can make the most of it there. 
The one other thing that's really exciting about this Australia A game is the battle between Joe Burns and Will Pekofsky. So it's going to be no secret that this is just a straight-up old-fashioned bat-off. It's going to be a head-to-head. They're most likely will be walking out together for that um, uh, three-day game against India. And it's going to be quite simple. Whoever outshines the other one will play that first test match in Adelaide. Obviously, Joe Burns, he's been in the test side quite a lot more, whereas Pekofsky's been dominating the Sheffield Shield. So it's up for the selectors to, to decide. Do we change a winning team and go for the exciting young gun or do we back our test opener and, and trust that he will find his form in the test side? So really it will come down to that bat off. We've seen before the selectors um, make selections based off one game. They've done it plenty of times before, but this is going to be a really exciting, just old fashioned bat off between Burns and Pekofsky. And the really interesting thing is it's not going to be one of those tour games where 13 or 14 players might get picked and they'll just keep batting a bit even if they lose too many wickets or they'll make sure everyone gets a bowl. Trevor Hones confirmed today they're only going to be picking 11 for these games. So this squad of 19, they're going to have to somehow whittle down to 11. And it means there's going to be some really good players there who miss out. So even though it's an exciting squad, It'll be interesting to see whether they pick a Tim Payne and then that means Alex Carey can't play, whether they pick a Travis Head and that means a middle-order batter like a Nick Maddinson or a Marcus Harris even can't play, and whether they pick Joe Burns and Will Pukowski and that means Marcus Harris can't play. So there's going to be lots of decisions there that the selectors are going to be like, who do we need to see the most in this game before the Test Series? And look, for me, obviously Joe Burns and Will Pukowski I agree with you. That's the one I'm most excited for. But there's a few other ones I'm really interested to see, in particular Mitch Swepson. and I hope he gets a run because he could cause India a lot of problems when the test summer comes around. Now, there are our squads for the upcoming summer. Plenty of cricket going on there, but someone who won't be taking part in all of these test matches is Virat Kohli. We got the news earlier this week uh, from the BCCI that Collie will be returning back to India after the first test to be home for the birth of his first child with his wife. Uh, obviously, it's a big blow to the series, and I don't think either you or I are begrudging of Collie for making this decision. It's certainly the right decision, but what sort of impact do you think it will have on the series, Nick? Well, it's an indication that we are in the modern age of cricket. 30, 40 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. So many former cricketers have talked about how they missed the birth of their children due to international commitments. So we are in the modern era of cricket. So yeah, good on Coley for making that decision. As you said, it is the right one. But I think it's going to be a massive blow, obviously, for the broadcasters. Channel 7, this kind of does validate the fact that they've been pushing for a discount for the broadcasting rights. Coley was the big golden ticket of this summer, and he's not going to feature in most of the test series. We will still see Coley, of course, in the short format series, the 3T20 and 3 one-day games, but they won't be broadcast on Channel 7. So Channel 7 only have two innings of Coley on their screens, which... It frankly is a little bit disappointing where India's coming down. Kohli is the big name there. Obviously, we still have um, the, the amazing pace bowling attack led by Jasper Bumrah. And really exciting that Rohit Sharma has been included back in that squad. He initially was um, not named due to injury concerns, but he is now back in and he will be coming down for the Test Series. And frankly, he hasn't really done very well in Test cricket in Australia in the past. He's got something to prove. This is one thing he hasn't ticked off his cricket career bucket list. So expect him to potentially get some runs. But certainly, Coley's omission, um, particularly for Channel 7, is a massive blow. 
Yeah, I certainly think there are some exciting names still in that Indian squad that people can go, okay, we're still going to get a lot of really valuable cricket. I mean, the likes of Kuldeep Yadav and Ravindra Jadeja, like that's some really interesting spin combination as well as Ashwin that will haunt the Australian batsmen after what they have achieved over the last few years, both here in Australia and away in India. We've obviously got Agrawal. We've got Prithi Shaw, the young opener, who's going to be re- it's going to be really good to see what he can do if he gets an opportunity. And of course, Kale Rahul. He's someone who's been in and out of the Indian Test side for a number of years now. So whether he can cement down that place around the top of the order or whether they will look to someone like a Prithi Shaw will be very interesting to see. That's where we're going to leave it for the international summer. We're going to take a quick break and be back with all the Sheffield Shield action. Nick, the Sheffield Shield round four is complete and we had three absolutely cracking matches with plenty of headlines coming out of all of them over the four days of action. We have to start at Gladys Elphick Park, New South Wales, bowled out for 64 and Tasmania still couldn't get the job done. They lost. Just let's talk about this match a little bit, Nick. What on earth? How do we describe this? Oh, frankly, it's embarrassing for Tasmania to be in a position where they bowl at New South Wales for 64, but then lose the game by 145 runs. Like, frankly, that's embarrassing. I, I, this is a really exciting Tasmanian squad. There's a lot of talent here, a lot of upcomers, a lot of experienced players in Siddle and Payne, but they just decided not to turn up for the rest of that game. In both innings that they batted, they were bowled out for less than 250. Only one batter in the first inning stood up. I know it wasn't the easiest batting conditions, but the fact that then when New South Wales batted again, three players scored centuries and their tail-enders were also scoring 50s as well. It's just a really disappointing result for them. So Tasmania, I think this is a big signal that they're just not going to turn up for this Sheffield Shield season. They're just not up to the standard that we expect for a champion side to be. So hats off to New South Wales. They were, after that first couple of sessions, they were pretty much impeccable. But um, yeah, a really embarrassing performance from the Tigers. Well, it was pretty clear Tim Payne was very frustrated post-match, throwing his gloves towards the tent in frustration that, how did we lose this match? I mean, lots of comparisons were drawn to that famous Headingley Asher Test match and a lot of comments on Twitter saying maybe Tim Payne shouldn't bowl sides out for less than 70-odd because it's a it's a concerning trend that when he does that, he seems to lose. But anyway, New South Wales, an incredible victory. You mentioned the six declared for 522 in the second innings for New South Wales three centurions let's talk through that a little bit obviously nick larkin it was a great innings from him but moses Enriquez and sean abbott have continued to do what they've been doing all season yeah exactly right um moses Enriquez, his second century of the summer um sean abbott his maiden first class century and that kind of solidified for me at least that he's now a permanent all-rounder and Nick Larkin, he's sort of been in that New South Wales side for a few years now, and we've seen glimpses of what he can do, but this was a stellar innings from him. But I think, unfortunately, the highlight for him was how that innings ended. Um, to be stumped is not exactly a rare thing in first-class cricket, but to be stumped by one of the fastest pace bowlers in the opposition side is <laughs> certainly a bit rarer. Uh, Tim Payne, obviously getting a little bit frustrated with the game, 
took a delivery, uh, a, gr- a great delivery from Bell, and just as a lot of keepers do, particularly in village cricket, underarm the ball towards the stumps for what would be a miracle stumping. And as it turned out, Larkin on 161 did have the heel of his back foot in the air and the umpire quickly gave him out. That was the end of his innings. That was it. Bell again bowls and that one has gone right through Larkin. Another fantastic delivery. Now Tim Payne has got a wicket just by being a very smart cricketer and that's how you get Larkin out. So Tim Payne achieving what wicketkeepers across the country have been trying to do for years. Um, but it really was an indication of the stage of the match as well. The bowlers were pretty sick of it. The batsmen had been there for ages. And in that sort of situation, we, we, we see weird things in cricket. We see part-timers bowling with caps on. We see weird dismissals. And, um, yeah, La- the end of Art Larkin's innings was no exception to that. I want to put the question to you. There's been a few people, I'm not going to name names, but a few people have suggested that Maybe what Tim Payne did wasn't in the spirit of the game. Maybe it was the equivalent of a man cat. I personally find that ridiculous. I know Mitchell Johnson came out on Instagram and said how anyone could have a problem with what Tim Payne did. It's ridiculous. But what do you think, Nick? It's funny, isn't it? Because it obviously has some similarities to the man cad, but certainly at least for Australians, the man cad is seen as one of the most despicable acts in cricket. Like how dare you even attempt a man cad? That's, that's awful. Uh, just think back to Ravi Ashwin in the IPL. He, w- he was mocked and ridiculed for it. However, what Payne did, at least when I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's genius. That's amazing. Like what an incredible piece of work from him. And in both instances, the batsmen are required to stay in their crease for a certain period of time. and But for some reason, one batsman is seen as incredibly unlucky and almost robbed of a chance to build his innings, whereas the other one is seen as a fool. Like, how dare you not stay in your crease after, you know, attempting a forward defence, Nick Larkin? Like, you goose, you absolute goose. And I don't know why that is. I, I don't really see the difference between the two, yet it, I guess it's just how we're raised in the sport. One is seen as a genius ploy. The other one is seen as a despicable act. And I think especially the thing is, if you just take out the bowl, if you say it's a spin bowler, even if he's out by the millimetres, if it's a spin bowler, it's just a stumping, full stop. Just because Payne had to throw the ball, it shouldn't make any difference. As a batter, you've got to stay in your, in your crease, and that's always been the rule, and it's just something that they've got to play by. Yeah, spot on. I think, uh, yeah, I don't really have an answer for what the difference is, but um, hats off to Tim Payne. That was brilliant. One of the highlights of the round. Well, from a Tasmanian wicketkeeper making it a split-second decision that potentially caused some controversy but was the right one, we go to another wicketkeeper, Peter Neville. He made a split-second decision to declare, wasn't probably a split-second decision, it was probably a well-thought-out decision, to declare after Sean Abbott got his century with Mitchell Stark left stranded on 86 not out as he was searching for his first ever first-class century. Starkey was not happy, throwing his bat, doing a bit of a just a bit of a tantrum almost as he went off the off the sidelines, walked over the ropes and into the dressing sheds. Do you blame him? I can understand his frustration. But I think in that instance, you do need to think about the team. Um, in the end, it was a masterstroke from Neville because Trent Copeland did take those two key wickets before stumps, which potentially could have impacted the final result. It, it was quite a close game in the end, and New South Wales did just secure that victory. But um, potentially if Neville hadn't declared then, it could have been a very different result. So 
Stark, I, I get it, but I think he was a little bit over the top, a little bit. Um, it was a bit of an ugly look coming from an international player. A lot of young kids look up to that, and I think, unfortunately, it's not the best look for him. But in reality, he had his chance to get a first-class century, and he threw it away himself. He was on 99 in that test match against India in 2013, and he played the the erratic stroke to get caught behind on 99. So he only has himself to blame. He can't blame his captain for the fact he hasn't got a first-class century, but um, his batting does look a lot better. He's built up a lot of muscle. He's playing a lot stronger with his uh, some of his stroke play, so I'm sure he'll get another chance at some stage. But I do not blame Peter Neville at all. I think it was the right call from him. You're bringing out your little burn book there, bringing up something that happened back in 2013 to justify Peter Neville's decision. I, I like that. Yeah. No, well, it's re- really, that was his fault. And um, today wasn't his fault. Like, he, he has no one to blame but himself for that 2013 dismissal. So, unfortunately, his high score is still 99. Same as, uh, weirdly, quite a few spin bowlers from New South Wales. I think Bo Casson had a highest first-class score of 99, as did Steve O'Keefe. Look, since you're not going to, I'm going to stick up for the fast bowling cartel. I'm going to side with Mitch Stark here. I think, obviously, Sean Abbott came out after day three and said that, yeah, Peter Neville sort of gave them that a, about a 15, 20-minute warning saying, yep, all right, that's what I'm going to declare. Have a go. See if we can get close to your centuries. As soon as Abbott got his century, he hit a nice four. I think it was a nice drive past mid-wicket. That's when Neville declared. and. During those sort of last two, three overs, Abbott was facing a majority of the balls and Mitchell Stark really didn't have an opportunity to get the strike and go for his boundary. And look, for me, I just personally think that another two, maybe three overs to give Stark an opportunity, at least let him hit out trying to get to the boundary and getting his century. I mean, Stark can hit a massive ball and on 86, realistically, if he wanted to, he could do it in an over. So for me... Neville should have maybe given Stark one, maybe two overs now that Abbott had got his century, because I don't think that would have impacted too much how much time that they had to bowl, because essentially they got the two wickets pretty quickly, and then they had another five or six overs where they couldn't break the partnership of Wade and Night Watchman Peter Siddle. So look, I'm taking Starkey's side, but this is what Peter Neville had to say after day four, once they had wrapped up the match on the incident, that he had to apologise slightly to Mitchell Stark for his errant declaration. Um, yeah, we, we have had a bit of a chat about it. Yeah. Um, I, I did apologise to him as well. I mean, um, you know, I'd love for him to get that milestone, but the most important thing was you know, us having a crack at him for, for, for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever it was last night. I think to get two key wickets as well last night um, you know, made the job today that much easier. And he would have understood that, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously you know frustrated because he was he was batting really well and you know close to getting a hundred. So um, you know, there'll be there'll be another opportunity for him, no doubt, if he keeps batting that way. So that's what Neville had to say. Clearly, he was a little bit jubilant still because New South Wales had just won. It was a record-breaking win. No Sheffield Shield side has won from scoring a lower total than New South Wales sixty-four in the first innings. It was quite remarkable. And look, as Nick said earlier. Disappointing for Tasmania, but full credit to the Blues for what they're able to achieve there. Now we've got to go over to one of the other two matches, Queensland versus South Australia. That was the other match to have a result after four days. And down at Glenelg, we saw some interesting action, but again, a lot of the same from South Australia, Nick. 
Well, I'm on track for my prediction they won't win a game. Um, yeah, the batters just weren't up to the standard, unfortunately. Um, a good a good century from Harry Nielsen on the final day. But, um, yep, the batters just didn't turn up in the first innings. And if you don't put on a big first inning score, well, with the exception of the New South Wales games, it's really difficult to come back and win. So, And in both innings, Queensland declared, I've said, to win first-class games, you need to take 20 wickets. And South Australia, once again, couldn't manage many. They only managed eight. So, yeah, they're... Um, they've just continue their horror form but uh yeah well done queensland a good all-round performance from them usman kawaja and matthew renshaw back of the runs both with big centuries in that first innings renshaw unbeaten on 168 kawaja out for 131 it's good to see them back in the runs nick yeah exactly right and i think um i'm personally really excited for matt renshaw this is his first first class century for i think about two and a half years the last time he scored a first class century was before the ball tampering incident like that's how long it's been since he's mustered that score um he found himself outside of the squad towards the end of last summer queensland um unfortunately had to drop him but he's back in a new role in the middle order and um finally after a few rounds he's found that big total so congrats to him and uh, i look forward to seeing him he's still very young obviously he's still 23 24 so Look forward to seeing what he has to offer over the next few years for Queensland. Certainly the case. And then I guess on the other end of things of someone who is still showing a lot of promise, we saw the last innings of Callum Ferguson, the South Australian stalwart, who has been playing for almost 14, 15 years in first-class cricket now. He became the fourth highest run scorer in South Australian Shield history with his 97 in the final innings. But boy, it was a shame to not see him farewell South Australia with a century, wasn't it, Nick? Yeah, disappointing. Definitely disappointing that he wasn't able to take the helmet off and celebrate that century. Um, Considering the circumstances, the top order was starting to crumble and he came in and formed that partnership with Harry Nielsen to almost save the game, almost save the game. Um, So another just classy performance from him just shows his experience. But yeah, as you said, during that final innings, he did slide up to number four on the all-time run scorers for South Australia in the Sheffield Shield. Uh, now, Locke, do you know who that top three are? Look, I know off the top of my head, number one is Darren Lehman, but you're going to have to help me out with the other two. Yeah, well, Greg Blewett is at number two. And um, David Hooks, the uh, World Series uh, cricket cricketer, uh, the batsman from South Australia, is at number three. So some pretty illustrious company there for Callum Ferguson. And yeah, hats off to a great career. Um, 16, 17 years in the Sheffield Shield comes to an end. But we will still see him in the Big Bash, hopefully captaining the Sydney Thunder. And I think he did say he'll play in the One Day Cup later this summer as well. Oh, I think when, when we are batting uh, batting well or or on a decent score, we we always think we've uh, we've got another 10 years ahead of us. But uh no, look, I, I, f- I felt like this was uh, this was going to be the one. Um, you know, I felt like this was this was the final hurrah, and, and I put everything into it that I could. Um, you know, tried not to. You know, it's my last game. Just you know, I'll just cruise through it. I, I wanted to throw everything that I always threw at it, and um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that I was able to have such a great partnership with Harry Nielsen. Um, you know, it's something that I've always enjoyed. Um, big partnerships with the younger players and. Uh, you know, to see him get a get his second first class hundred, play as well as he did on on a fourth day wicket, um, fills me with a, a lot of excitement going forward about where this uh, South Australian team could end up in, you know, two, three, four years time. Now, the final thing we have to look at from this match is our boy. We named the episode last week the Mitch Swepson Fan Club, and 
While it looked like he wasn't having the impact in that second innings, he came through for us at the end, cleaning up the tail and securing victory for Queensland. Mitch Swepson, he just keeps getting better and better, Nick. Well, after in the first inning, snaring his third consecutive first-class Fifer with five for 55, he, yeah, as you said, he didn't quite look at his best in the second innings at first. I think at one stage he was none for a hundred and something. But then when they desperately needed a breakthrough, I think they'd gone, the Queenslanders had gone 25 overs without a, a wicket and they needed three heading into that final hour. Swepson just ripped the ball and took three quick wickets. I think three wickets in 10 or 11 balls to finish the game. It was another really exciting ending to a Queensland game, another victory for them. They've had three great finishes. You think about Swepson in round one, getting the win. Um, yeah. The the match against New South Wales, where they won by one wicket and Sean Abbott hitting the winning runs. And then this game as well, going to the final hour. Basically, keep an eye on Queensland throughout this Sheffield Shield. We won't see any Sheffield Shield cricket till February, but they just keep offering offering up really exciting games. Three matches and three nail-biters. So, yeah, in terms of the um, entertainment factor, Queensland are dominating the Sheffield Shield. And with Swepson, and the thing I'm most impressed about is just his workload. He gets through so many overs out there. He bowled 52 in that second innings, and that that's just remarkable when you consider how long he's out there, how warm and hot it was in South Australia over those last two days. So I think it just speaks volumes to his persistence, to his focus on line and length, and to the fact that he knows he has that ability now to take wickets. So as long as he focuses in on that, he will eventually take them. So it's fantastic to see him rewarded and He's the leading wicket taker in the shield for a reason. Now, the final game we have to look at is Victoria WA. Unfortunately, the two teams shook hands during the day on day four. No result was going to be had, so they just called it off. But still plenty to take out of this game, Nick. Yeah, well, the, the big thing that obviously happened in the first innings was Will Pukowski scoring a second consecutive double century. That hasn't happened since 1996-97, I believe, so... Uh, a 24-year first there from him. Again, he, just, he was just batting with well above his experience. He he looks the real deal here. He, he's a really exciting prospect for the international side. So, um, And he, he essentially just ensured his spot in the test squad. He, coming out of nowhere, missing the first two rounds, he did literally everything he can possibly do. Two consecutive double centuries. Um, and then also another classy performance from Marcus Harris. No big total from him, but he's looking fantastic as well and will hopefully shine again in the Australia A game later this summer. And the thing I enjoyed seeing, a much earlier declaration from Victoria this time. They weren't going to hang around for too long and bat too long. They wanted to make sure they put WA back out there. But, I mean, WA, they batted well. And, of course, the main man we've got to look at is Sean Marsh. Well, he's been the best batter in the tournament. I know Pekovsky got some big scores, but Sean Marsh has been the best batter this season so far. We talked earlier about how he was quite unlucky to not make the test squad, but if he's just going to continue scoring runs, the WA side won't mind. Like He's batting at three. He's got three centuries and two fifties, I believe, in four games. And then, yeah, Josh Inglis, his second century of the summer. Uh, we've already talked quite a bit about him. And also some good cameos from Darcy Short and Cameron Green. Um, they spent some time at the crease. Uh, Darcy Short, obviously a bit of a short format specialist. So it was nice to see him get a few runs. And yeah, by the end of that innings, it was pretty much a certainty that the game was going to be a draw. This was the fizzer of the round. This was the, the dull match of the round, I suppose. But always nice to see some domestic players get some runs under their belt. 
I think it's probably the one concern we had with both these sides going into the tournament, potentially the wickets not being there. Obviously, Cameron Gannon was a great pickup for WA, but he went wicketless in that first innings. Matthew Kelly took three. He was the main sort of destroyer there. Victoria's bowling lineup, there's certainly a lot to like there. Will Sutherland, he's bowling well. He took some more wickets. John Holland finally got in the action, got four wickets, and Scott Boland again was bowling well. But it's that second, third, fourth quick that they just need to find a bit more consistency with. They blooded some young guys in that first match last week, but they just need to be able to rely on them to take a few more wickets, I think. So that's something both sides will have to look at as we get back into shield action come February, March next year. Now, a quick look at where that leaves at the Sheffield Shield table going into the break for the tests and Big Bash. Queensland are sitting on top with 18 points. New South Wales are in second on 16, WA on 14 in third. Tassie are on eight, still yet to win, but have picked up a few points thanks to the no results. Victoria, six points, still no wins in their books despite two massive first innings totals. And South Australia are rounding out the tail, sitting on the bottom without a win to their name as well. Nick, what do you think we can see once the Shield comes back in February? What are you expecting? Well, I think the usual suspects will continue to dominate. I think New South Wales are on track for potentially another championship here because when that Shield does continue in February, March, if there aren't too many clashes with the international fixtures and the potential tour to South Africa, they might have the likes of David Warner, Steve Smith, Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood. So they're certainly on track for another championship. However, Queensland, I'm liking the look of them. I'm really liking the look of their squad. So that would be the ideal final, a state of origin sort of match, if you like, New South Wales versus Queensland. But Victoria, they've only played two games and they've performed pretty well in both of them. So they'll certainly be fighting for a spot in the top two as well. But, um, yeah, sorry to say, it really does look like Tasmania and South Australia are going to be the cellar dwellers. They, I can't see them making a, a sudden resurgence in February, March after the BBL break. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, seems to be the usual suspects dominating the Shield this year. Well, there you go. Nick has put a line through two teams for the Shield already. Let's see if that comes true early next year. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back and look at some of the WBBL action. Nick, we're a bit over halfway through the WBBL now. The Melbourne Stars, they are leading the way. They are undefeated on top of the table. Let's talk about them a bit quickly because led by Meg Lanning, they have been absolutely fantastic this season and look like they might finally break their duck and make the finals. Yeah, it's been really surprising how well they have performed. I guess surprising in that looking at their roster, they've got a talented lineup, obviously. But as you said, the past few years they've always sort of ended up in the bottom two or three spots on the ladder. They've never really been a big name in the WBBL. And all of a sudden, over halfway through, they're still undefeated. Every other franchise has lost at least two games, but they're still undefeated. So they're almost certainties for the finals and um, probably favorites at this stage with the likes of Meg Lanning, Elise Villani, and a few young guns as well in there who are um, really lighting up the WBBL. So yeah, keep an eye out for them. Hopefully someone is able to stop them because they're on a rampage for the title at this stage well the main one for me is nat siva she has been 
incredible with the ball. 12 wickets. I think it's been quite spectacular. Um, and obviously Meg Lanning is leading the way with her 246 runs through the eight matches so far. So, look, it's fantastic to see them going well. A lot more to like in the competition. Perth's opening partnership there seems to be clicking. And while they might not both be firing at the same time, well, they did against the Sydney Sixers at Hurstville Oval, at least one of them is usually going on to get a big score. With the possible exception of Perry and Healy and the Sixers, this is the most intimidating opening partnership I can think of. The explosive nature of Sophie Devine. We know that she can clear six uh, the boundary on almost any field in the WBBL with ease. She's so powerful. But then also the precision and the just the class of Beth Mooney. If one of them fails early, the other one almost certainly um, holds the innings together and scores a big total. And as we saw against the Sixers about a week ago, when they are together... Um, batting over through the power play and through that first 10 overs, they can put on scores of excess of 200. So that is a, a, a mouth-watering opening partnership there. Um, and if they do make the finals, well, the bowling attacks are going to have to work out a way to stop them. The thing that's impressed me most about the Scorchers is that they haven't solely relied on Mooney and Devine to sort of get them over the line. That was our concern, I guess, before the season about what would happen if they failed. And I think whilst they've had one or two matches where they probably haven't performed how they would have liked, that they've had a lot of other players step up to perform when they needed to. I think the English leg spinner Sarah Glenn has been very impressive in the bowling innings. And you and I were both at Blacktown for their game against the Sixers. And I think we were both quite impressed by Tanila Pichel as well with her pace. And she obviously picked up the early wicket of Ash Gardner, which was crucial for them in limiting the Sixers total. So I think they're set up for a really nice tournament coming up. And unfortunately, and due to no fault of their own, we probably can't say the same about the Melbourne Renegades now. They've just had injuries go through their squad. First, Maitland Brown, the young quick, and now Georgia Wareham. It's just so sad to see, isn't it, Nick? Well, they had such a dynamic young roster. Um, You think of the likes of uh, Sophie Molyneux and, as you said, Georgia Wareham. Not only are they losing a lot of injuries, but some of the most experienced players just aren't stepping up. Uh, Sophie Molyneux, she, with the bat particularly, just hasn't performed at her best at the moment. Um, opening the batting, she just isn't getting the runs that we'd like to see. And Molly Strano isn't snaring as many wickets as we'd like to see from her as well. She was obviously an Australian player in that World Cup. And yeah, we just haven't seen the more experienced players step up. And when that does happen in the WBBL, it's really difficult for the the young guns, the inexperienced players to you know, make up the difference, I suppose. So um, they're not going to make the final, sadly, um, particularly now that Georgia Wareham, who's slowly establishing herself as an all-rounder, won't feature. Yeah, the loss of Wareham's a huge one, considering how well she's been batting. She's in the top five for highest strike rate so far this competition. I've been impressed Lizelle Lee has been able to slowly build up her form for the Renegades, but I just think without Wareham, without Brown, it's just going to be hard to see them force their way back up the table now because they are stuck down at the bottom. Another performance that we have to look at, Amelia Kerr, the young Kiwi leg spinner, took four for against the Sydney Thunder on Wednesday. I picked her as the highest wicket taker of the tournament. She hasn't had the best tournament so far, but she really showed against the Thunder what she can do. I am so excited about Amelia Kerr. I can't even put into words how... I think she's going to be a superstar. One of the big names of not just women's cricket, but cricket in general. She's still 21. She's or at least around 21, a really young prospect. And we saw her, that viral video of her making her debut in New Zealand when she was 14, 15. And she just continues to improve since then. Uh, yesterday against the Sydney Thunder, 
Uh, she got the key wicket early of Heather Knight, and I think that was the difference. I think if you get Heather Knight early, then the rest of the Thunder lineup just aren't quite able to put on a big score. So she finished up with a forfa. I think it was her best ever figures in the WBBL. And I can only see her improving. At this stage, the one thing she really needs to fix up is her consistency. But if you are a young leg spinner, there are going to be half trackers. There are going to be full tosses. So that's just something that will naturally improve over time. So yeah, over the next few years, not just for the heat, but for New Zealand, she's going to be a massive name. One other player I want to single out who has been looking fantastic this tournament and is already in the top five in, for runs scored is Laura Vilfart, the young South African batter. 237 runs for the Adelaide Strikers. She hit the most beautiful off-drive for six, technique perfect at North Sydney over last weekend. Every time she bats and has a great innings, she just is so good to watch in terms of technique. I'm so excited by her, just as excited as you are by Kerr. What have you made of Ulfart so far? Certainly to watch. She's one of the most beautiful batsmen to watch in the competition. Uh, You know, that sort of textbook technique, but with a lot of power as well. Um, Kind of reminds me of Cameron Green in a way. Both of them are obviously quite young, uh, obviously slowly finding their way in domestic and international cricket, but just look great to watch. So, yeah, every time the strikers are batting, I, um, I sort of, hope there's an early wicket so that she can come to the crease a bit earlier. (laughs) So, of course, still a few more weeks left of the WBBL. Exciting news that the finals are going to be all in prime time, all at North Sydney Oval. So be sure to keep your eye out for that. Now let's look at the Big Bash, the men's competition. That's only going to be starting in in a few weeks' time and going to be going around the country, starting in Hobart and Canberra and then going on from there. Plenty to look forward to there, exciting sort of hub life. And one of the big pieces of news, Mitch Stark, he's coming back to the BBL to play for the Sydney Sixers. You excited, Nick? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think it's been about five or six years since we last saw him in the BBL. And he really is suited for T20 cricket in a way. He swings the ball late. He's tall, he's fiery, he's explosive, and he can obviously hit the cricket ball a long way as well. Um, BBL and Mitch Stark to go together like, uh, well... Can you think of a good analogy for me there, mate? Go together like Mitch Stark and toe-crushing Yorkers? <laughs> that works. That works, definitely. That works? Okay. We'll yeah, go with it that. does the job. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's obviously brilliant and really exciting that he's back. He won't obviously feature in the whole tournament. He'll have the duties in test cricket, but um, I think he'll be there for the finals. So, lucky sixes. Well, he's one of a number of extremely exciting signings that we've got coming to the Big Bash this year. I mean, it's quite incredible when you think just how many international talents are going to be here. Obviously, they've got the extra position, which is fantastic, that it means we're going to be seeing more international players. And whilst a lot of teams have gone for big names, that there's been some young, exciting names, sort of, especially some from England who are set to come over and showcase what they've got. I mean, Brisbane Heat just announced on Thursday that England batting with Dan Lawrence will be joining them. He joins, I think, Lewis Gregory as another exciting English import to Brisbane. The Heat have also signed Mornay Morkel. You've got Colin Ingram, you've got David Milan, you've got Riley Rosso, Imran Tahir. You've got uh, Muhammad Nabi as well is coming out here. I think it's just going to be so exciting. I mean, Jason Roy as well. We can't forget him. He's going to the Perth Scorchers. Sam Billings, Adam Milne. Is this going to be the most exciting crop of international talent we've seen in the BBL? 
I don't know if it's going to be the most exciting. You think about the past years, and we've had the likes of Merulitherin, Shaida Freedy, Lasseth Malinga. Those are proper T20 superstars. A lot of the people you just named are absolutely undeniably talented players, but they're more dominant, I suppose, in kind of the T20 tournaments around the world, such as uh, in England and in Pakistan. They've proven their worth, but they're not the big superstar names. They're not the household names that cricket fanatics like you and I um, would necessarily know. So I think the big thing was Cricket Australia confirming that BBL schedule a couple of weeks ago. Once they had that calendar, all these names started to drop like dominoes. Like every day there was a new big signing. So good on them for finally solidifying that calendar because now we've been able to see all these exciting international prospects um, put their name down for some BBL cricket. And of course, I might have missed uh, Johnny Bairstow going to the stars as well as Nicholas Puran, the young West Indies player too. So it's going to be exciting to see them in the green of the stars. One last thing on the BBL, it was floated around a few articles this week that there's going to be a super sub rule introduced. Um, Nick, it's fair to say it's not a rule that too many people enjoyed and you and I are at the top of that list of people who are scratching our heads as to this is just not something the BBL needed to introduce. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sceptical, as you are. Uh, it, it seems unnecessary unless there is uh, a concussion scare. I think that is a really important thing that the ICC have introduced. But just to bring in a super sub halfway through an innings just for the sake of it, um, I don't know. It does seem like a bit of a desperate ploy to sort of innovate the game and bring in something new. But I think the BBL, or Cricket Australia rather, will be announcing a handful of other innovations over the next few days. Um, potentially three or four different things to spice up the game. I don't know how that's going to look, but it does kind of suggest that I think we can start to look at BBL as not proper cricket at this stage. It isn't really cricket anymore. It's something that is used to, like almost designed for television, for the viewers at home. It's entertainment rather than a sporting contest in in some regards. But um, Regardless, I'm sceptical now, but I could be proven wrong. This could be one of the best innovations in T20 cricket we've seen. We'll just have to wait and see. So I guess I shouldn't be too uh, critical of it. It might be brilliant. Uh, I remember a decade ago saying the same thing about DRS, and now that's such a pitiful, pitiful, pivotal part of the game. So, yeah, let's wait and see. But um, at this stage, I'm, I'm not a fan. Look, if it's anything like the tactical timeouts, I'm sure they won't be popular choices oh. anyway. Oh, this is so glad. frustrating. Oh. I'm just glad that these sub rules aren't in grey cricket because I would be finding myself sitting on the pine a lot of the time if this skipper <laughs> could just go, hey, um, just go sit down for a bit. You've only bowled you one over, but I think I think that's enough. I've seen enough from you today. Oh, no. Oh, dear. Yeah, I, I think Mate, I actually it could be quite good for, like, in T20 cricket, I can't bat, I can't score runs, I can barely hit it off the square. So it could be good to chuck me out and bring in a, a decent bat to come in and lower down the order in a T20 game. Like, I'm not a fan of the rule, but I will be excited to see how teams try and exploit the rule and what tactics they use to try and get the best out of it, that's for sure. Now, before we go into a bit of Savage's Seeds, let's take a quick look around the world of cricket. Obviously, a lot has happened in the IPL. There's been some big results, and Marcus Stoinis has been in the thick of all the action. Nick, run us through what happened there and what happened in the final. Well, Stoinis almost single-handedly got... Ricky Ponting side into that final. He had a fantastic qualifier, uh, both with bat and ball. Um, and in the final, Ponting experimented a bit and put Stoinis to open the batting, which um, he hadn't been doing throughout the tournament. He was seen as more of a finisher. 
But considering how well he has opened in the BBL for the Melbourne Stars, it was worth trialing. Um, but it, it didn't pay off. Not at all. Stoinis gets a duck. And the Mumbai Indians claim, I think, their fifth IPL title, potentially sixth. I don't know. They seem to win it every other year. So, yeah, once again, Rohit Sharma's Mumbai Indians are the champions of the IPL. They are the best side there, undeniably. They were top of the ladder. They won it last year. And um, I think they're going to be looking for a three-peat in 2021. I think Jofra Archer, named player of the tournament. What did you make of him, What of what you saw? Well, he was not just one of the best players in the tournament, but he was undeniably the best bowler for Steve Smith's Rajasthan Royals. I think he averaged, oh, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but he averaged something around 13 or 14 with the ball. All the other bowlers combined were, I think, quadruple that. They averaged 60. It really was, it was a one-man show in terms of the bowling department for the Rajasthan Royals. And even their batters, Smith, Stokes, Butler, those are huge names. None of them had a great tournament by any means. Stokes got one century, but apart from that, each of them were a bit disappointing. So looking at the caliber of that side, it's a bit underwhelming for them to finish at the bottom of the ladder. But Joffrey Archer, gosh, he's exciting. A really exciting player. I wish he was coming down for the BBL, but I don't think he's been signed yet. No, maybe, maybe, but I doubt that he'll be coming down. One player I do want to shout out in particular is Nathan Coulton-Nile. Two wickets in that final for the Mumbai Indians. Uh, Someone without a contract here at state level. Uh, West Australia obviously let him go in terms of shield. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of impact he can have once he comes back into the BBL and what happens once the one-day tournament comes back around for WA there. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Savage's Seeds. All right, Nick, let's bring this thing home. Savage's Seeds, hit me. What's your strong opinion for this week? Well, we've seen some big signings for the Melbourne Stars BBL side over the past week. Obviously, Johnny Bairstow, potentially one of the best short format openers in the world. And he might be pairing with Marcus Stoinis, who obviously was the highest run scorer of last year's tournament. And then you go down the order, not only is there Glenn Maxwell, but also Will Pekovsky, um, one of the rising stars of the game. So... A great batting lineup, but my savage seed is that the Melbourne Stars will reach the grand final of the BBL, but lose again. You got to feel sorry for them. I think surely their time is coming soon. And especially with the likes of Johnny Bairstow, Nicholas Poran, they brought in Billy Stanlake, one of the best T20 bowlers. They've got Storiness. They've got Adam Zampa. They've obviously lost, lost Captain Pete Hanscom, but with that sort of squad, they have to be making the final, but you're already calling it for them to lose? I think at this stage, it's just a mental thing for them. Twice in a row, they've been in a position to win the grand final and they've lost. Admittedly, last year, rain played a factor. But what we saw in that 2019 final against the Renegades was one of the most cataclysmic collapses in the T20 game. I just don't think they're, they are able to win the important games. And even Marcus Stoinis, their best batter, again, in the IPL the other night, failed in the final as well. They, they're just chokers when it comes to the big event, and I can't see that changing. We'll see them top the ladder, I'm sure of it, but they will not win the BBL this summer. I'm going to call it. You're going to call it. Okay, that's very interesting. Do you want to hear mine, Nick? Yes, please. Hit me up. Are you sitting down? Yeah, oh, yeah, actually, I am, funnily enough. I want you to stand up and sit down again before I say this, though. All right, hang on. Okay, I'm standing. And down. 
Oh, okay, I'm down. Cricket Australia and the selectors will pick Joe Burns to open for the first test against India at the Adelaide Oval. <laughs> you know Do what? You you're, know my... you're right. You're right. But I want to hear why you're right first. So Trevor Hone today was talking about the selection. Obviously, Burns has been picked in the side based on what he's done previously because they know what they can they know what they can expect from him. And Will Pekowski is obviously untested at that level. But there was a really interesting point that was raised about they did talk to David Warner about who he'd like to open with and what he'd like to see from an opening partner. And it was just the way Trevor Hones was speaking about Joe Burns with a sense of sort of still adoration was there. And then he was like, had seen a lot of positives in Burns' shield form that a lot of us hadn't seen. And I found that really intriguing, just the way that obviously as a selector, you can't write anyone's name out. You've got to be political and you've got to say the right things. But just in some of the things that he was saying, it sort of seemed to me like Joe Burns is a lot higher up in the estimations of the Cricket Australia selectors than the rest of us mere mortals potentially think he is. Never change a winning side. Never. That's a big mistake the national selectors have done in past years. You think about the fact they sacked George Bailey after the 5-0 Ashes whitewash. I think that was a huge error. They've still look they're still looking for a number six since then. They never change a winning side. And and Joe Burns, yes, he hasn't been great in the Sheffield Shield, but they will back him in Adelaide, I, I think, as you've said, just because of A, David Warner's a big fan of him, and and that's enough almost as it is. But he has test entries. He's a proven player at test level. Pekowski, he hasn't played an international game yet. And let's let's be honest, the batting conditions in the Sheffield Shield have been completely lopsided they are suited for batters completely and as great he has been it'll be very different with a pink ball under lights against the indian pace attack that is a completely different ball game a different standard so i'd rather have potentially someone who at least has a bit of international experience and can score centuries over an unknown i guess in wilpakovsky Well, that's where we're going to leave it this week on that bombshell, that exclusive from the two of us right here. No factual evidence behind it whatsoever. Thank you for listening to the Boundary Variety podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. We are available on Apple and Spotify. We're also all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at the Boundary Rider podcast. And we're also, you can hit us up on emails if you've got any questions you want to put to us at boundaryriderpod at gmail.com. Nick, it has been a pleasure to be with you as always. It's been brilliant, Locke. Thanks so much, man. And we'll be back very soon with another episode of the Boundary Rider podcast.